expertise for me is number one. Behavior and attitude is probably the second most important thing. Those two things, I think, for us would make really, really good recruiters, really, really good leaders, and people who will who will make an impact in the market. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Abid Hamid. Abid is the group CEO at Recruitment Entrepreneur, one of the most successful investors in startups and scaling recruitment businesses in the world. Since 2014, they've invested in over 45 recruitment businesses with combined revenue of 43 million pounds, an average annual growth of 165%, which is insane growth. Abbott trained as a lawyer and worked in corporate banking before joining the recruitment industry over 25 years ago. He's currently chairman or non-exec director of 19 recruitment businesses, and he's a particular expert in running culturally diverse teams, operating in challenging environments, facilitating turnarounds, and building and growing companies. This is Abbott's second time on the podcast. Last time was episode 48, How to Start Up and Scale an Exitable Recruitment Business. Welcome, Abbott. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me for the second time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. By the way, it was great to see you last week at Millville Castle in Edinburgh. Um, what was, you were doing a CEO forum of some kind. Can you talk about what and what you're doing and why? Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that we don't have is a monopoly on wisdom. Um, and one of the things that we established, I guess, about five years ago was getting all the CEOs together and having a constructive day on three or four subjects that we kind of, you know, survey before saying, look, guys, what do you think are the big challenges? And then we get everyone in a room um, and we discuss it. Um, and, and, you know, this is the front line. This is 30, 31 odd people um, who are leading either startups, scale-ups or anywhere between. Um, and you know the the knowledge that sits in that room is is fantastic. So the purpose of the exercise is to do that, uh, have lots of really kind of relevant conversations, day to day, operational, or they could be sales, or they could be you know training. It could be people, um, and also really that social interaction that that obviously COVID destroyed a little bit, but we've kind of reestablished. This is the second one we've done this year, so. They've been really, really helpful. It's good to re-engage with people. I mean, we met and had a drink, you know. I mean, you know, that's kind of, it sounds so normal, but, it, you know, a year ago, that would have been insane. I know. Yeah. It, was, it was a lot of fun. In fact, that was my first proper business social networking thing for probably two years of yeah. it. So yeah. um, it was awesome. Why do you guys come to Edinburgh? Because you're all over. Um, so we, we, started with a, we started with an away match and a home match. Um, and the home match used to be London and away match was wherever we had an office. Um, and last time we went to Melville Castle, we got a very good commercial deal. I mean, literally, we over we took over the hotel, um, and it was really nice. It's such a pleasant place. There are no distractions. Uh, easy to get to for everyone. So yeah, I mean, more a logistical exercise and 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 commercial one than any other reason. Okay, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, uh, well, I'm glad that we had that opportunity. So. So I, I'm interested, you mentioned, by the way, I'm a big believer in the power of masterminding with like-minded people with common, 
you know, goals and shared challenges. Yeah. Um, what were the hot topics that your founders, CEOs were uh, most keen to discuss? Because um, that's probably... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, well, let me walk you through them. I mean, mm-hmm. the first one was the state of the market and what we thought the state of the market was looking like and what actions are we taking? What are the challenges? And the things that came out were interesting ones. I mean, so first one was building cultures within businesses where you have a flexible environment. Uh, you know, how do we continue to do that? Uh, how do we attract people in, an, in a market which is overheating in terms of salaries? Uh, and, you know, you have many, many challenges now. It's not just the recruiter, but it's also the in-house person and so on and so forth. And the third one was really how do you create more sticky sticky relationships with your clients? So those were the, the those were the subjects that we discussed. I mean, interesting diversity from you know we should have four day weeks as normal, um, all the way through to no no I want everybody in every day eight to six. So um, you know it's it's great to hear everybody's opinions on it. I think we all settled on a couple of things. One was flexibility is here to stay, right? It's how you manage that flexibility. So some of the things that we we came up with were were things like if you're going to let people have the flexibility, then hopefully you can get them to come in in teams um, rather than you know one person from one team, one person from another team. So that was one that that I think creates at least an element of culture um, within the teams. The second piece of it was how do we keep facilitating growth and training when people aren't in every day because a lot of what you do on the sales floor is is osmosis you know you hear somebody say something you think oh wow that's a really cool line i'd love to use that and you know it's very difficult to do that when you're working from home in an isolated uh, way and you know you're doing your thing so i think those were the kind of takeaways from that um the sticky client relationship that was a very very interesting one um because, you know, today we're all running around going, you know, we've got so many jobs, I'm so busy. But in reality, we aren't really changing how we deliver to the client. The client's problem is still exactly the same. Um, so we looked at different options. I won't tell you all of those because they'll be giving away. Um, but, but it was really how do we challenge that? You know, what is a client relationship? Is a client relationship you know, sending John an email and he responds within 30 seconds. Is that a client relationship? Or is a client relationship really understanding the pain points of the client, what their budgets are, what their thought processes are, what their challenges are, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a, it was a pretty broad conversation, actually. It's an interesting one. What is the definition of a client? Because, you know, it it raises all kinds of questions in terms of like what which companies are off limits, which companies can we recruit from? Is a client someone who gives you a job order or is a client someone who you've actually done business with, you've placed with, and they've paid you a fee in the last six months or 12 months or whatever time frame you want to put on it? Or is a client only those who work with you on a retained basis? Uh, did you guys come up with a uh, an answer to that question? Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> I mean the definitions that you've just given are pretty base level. Um, I think most of us in recruitment or have been in recruitment would probably all have a pretty clear 
uh, definition of what a client is. You know, somebody who's given you business within the last six months or 12 months, that kind of stuff. This was more about, I have a client. I do business with them occasionally or regularly. How do you define that client? You know, what is what is it that you are doing for, the, for that client? What else could you do for that client? What else does the client need from you? Do you really know or are you just taking those 20 jobs and working them and making money? Um, which is, there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I quite like that idea. Um, but it's, it's, it's also the extras. You know, what else are you doing? Um, and and one of the one of the statistics that came out were that we put out thirty six tenders in the last nine months. I mean, you know, for us, tendering is not something that we would push up there as a as a hey, that's our first option. But actually, we've been driven to that, and we've now got a full time you know bid writer within our team, um, and and she's busy constantly putting out bids, and we've won nineteen. Um, which is which is great and that is excellent. yeah yeah it's excellent um, and the quality of of those bids are sticky relationships they're contractual they have SLAs you know they have a team member who is responsible for that account um, and so on and so forth so it's a much much more interesting dynamic and I think as the market slows um, which it will do you know whether it does in the next six months or next 18 months, it will slow. Um, the people with those kinds of relationships, I think, will have a better standing in the marketplace than the spot recruiters. This is a really interesting point because, on the one hand, having those contractual relationships, you've got signed agreements with customers, SLAs and so on, um, does give you security. It gives you continuity, uh, consistency, but it can come at a cost. And so there's always this question of, do we want that business uh, that we've tendered for? And because often the downsides are, there's more layers between you and the hiring manager. Sometimes they don't even want you to talk to the business, which you know, makes it virtually impossible to really understand the requirements and sell the opportunity effectively. It slows down the hiring cycle. It's uh, often, you know, because there's volume business involved, they want price reductions. How do you guys decide whether or not it's even worth going for? Yeah, good question. Um, one, I don't think we've given any major discounts because the client okay. isn't looking for the major discount right now. What he's looking for or she is looking for is a solution. Um, and that solution is worth a lot more. Um so that's number one. Number two, we've been very, very strict with things like payment terms. You know, we will not budge on payment terms. We will walk away from a deal on payment terms. And that's purely because we are an exit strategy business. And anybody who understands exiting will know that, you know, your ledger becomes an important discussion point when you're, when you're selling a business. And the third part of it is, sure, we have clients that will create layers, but we've also created different layers in the business. So, for example, traditionally, I would have taken a 360 recruiter and put it on this, on this account because it's a big account and so on and so forth, and 360 recruiters will be doing a 180 job. Well, mm. actually, what we've done is we've created a 180 layer within the business that delivers a 180 role because 
the 360 piece isn't, isn't required. So it's a little bit more of a becoming an expert of the customer rather than being a salesperson going and generating business. So the, the, the impact of that, Mark, is that the salary structures and the, 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 the re remuneration that you've got for 360 as you have to a 180 is very different. Um, I mean, and, and therefore there are pluses um, that you can, you can accommodate within your business that kind of make sure that that's commercially a good thing to do. It makes great sense. I like it. Um, you mentioned payment terms there, which, you know, cash is king. And, uh, you know, my mentor, Romney Ross, used to say, you know, sales turnover is vanity, profit is sanity, cash is reality. Yeah. Um, but a lot of recruiters, especially smaller recruiting firms, are really scared or intimidated to or they just accept like they have a big client much bigger than they are and they say oh, we pay you know 60 days net or uh, or whatever and they just assume that is carved in stone and there's no negotiation there what payment terms do you expect from clients and then you know um and how do you you know insist upon them well it's a two-way negotiations negotiation right um just because the client's got 60 days doesn't mean I have to accept it. So the first, first point of call is, do, you know, you have to ensure that the client wants you to be their partner. And I mean right. partner, not just a supplier, right? Um, and once you get to that point, then you've got to explain to them the rationale behind what it is that you want to do. Now, the bigger companies actually are a lot easier to deal with. You know, the Unilevers or the GSKs or the British Airways have all made public statements. Um, and if you look at their, you know, corporate reporting or any of their major, you know, announcements about how they look after their smaller suppliers, you'll find in there a statement which will say, we will, we will do our utmost to pay smaller businesses within 30 days or whatever it is that their, their conditions are you need to be bothered enough to go and look for it. Right? Now, right. if a company then says, oh, well, we can't do that, and you say, well, that's your public statement. You know, so perhaps you could explain that to me. Um, so, <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's lots of, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm being fairly blunt, but, you know, obviously I'd be a lot more gentle and a lot more kind of <laughs> sophisticated about it. But, but their clients will, of course, go for 60 days unless they unless you ask them and why wouldn't you ask them and asking them and just going oh okay fine isn't what i mean by asking i mean putting your position out there strongly and and making a case for it 100% and also being willing to walk away if they you know can't uh if you can't agree on those on those payment terms because you know just because they not all business is good business, I guess, is what I'm... Yeah, I mean, look, uh, the, the, the reality is, over 30 days, you, you end up being a banker for your, for your client, right? Yeah. And that's expensive. Um, and as, as we see the economy changing, interest rates changing, all sorts of stuff, money is not going to remain cheap. It has been cheap for a very, very long time. Um, but I don't think that's going to be the state of affairs going forward. Um, so, you know, especially if you're in a temp contract market, if you aren't getting paid before you're paying out, um, 
that's an expensive exercise from a business perspective mm-hmm. and, and not a clever one. It doesn't matter Absolutely. what your size is. It's just not, it's not what your business is designed to do. We are a recruitment company, you know? Um, so it, and, and, you know, we're not bankers. Uh, totally. My, uh, another thing Romney used to say is that, you know, he had a list of metrics that would influence the valuation of a business and debtor days was one of those 100%, metrics. Yeah. Would you like to make the transition from pure contingency to being a retained recruiter? Do you want to be respected as a true business partner by your clients while increasing your average fee? If so, then clearly you need to do something different. You can't just keep doing what you're doing and expect a different result. Our sponsor, iIntro, gives you a turnkey solution for winning retained searches and managed service agreements at higher fees. You will take business away from your competitors because you can actually show the client a unique methodology in a very tangible way and demonstrate conclusively how you will improve their staff retention and reduce their total cost per hire while also saving hours of management time. If you'd like to see how iIntro can help you to grow your recruitment business and increase your average fees, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. Book a free consultation. There's no obligation. And if you mention that you listen to this podcast, iIntro have pledged to offer you a 25% discount on any of their services. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained to get started. Coming back to your CEO forum, and the kinds of issues that you discussed. Um, you mentioned state of the market and also, you know, potential that things this, you know, uh, hot market right now could slow down. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what what are your sort of thoughts about the next 12, 24 months in recruiting? What are you guys expecting to happen? Well, I wish I knew. Um, I mean, my best guess is based on experience. You know, recruitment companies have, I mean, any recruitment company that's been out there for, you know, let's say the last 20 years or 25 years would have would have gone through four, four major cycles, four recessionary markets, and then obviously the uplifts. Um, currently, you know, we still have enough demand in the market, and I don't see that slowing down, barring any any, let's say, war situations that we've got currently. If you're looking at economic situations, I mean, to date, um, I don't see anything that would impact it in the short term, and the short term being the next nine months. Anything past nine months, really, I think you have to kind of dig deeper into the reason why we've got such a demand market. And And I think there are a number of reasons. One, COVID kind of put a blocker down on a lot of recruitment. There was a lot of pent-up energy. There was a lot of pent-up projects that needed kind of bringing back up. So that was one one reason that we had a huge demand suddenly for, for skill set. We've had also, for the first time, I think, a large portion of, in the UK this is, uh, this is probably not appropriate everywhere, but we had a large portion of our, our worker population that left because of Brexit. Um, and the third piece, which is a lot more interesting, um, is that there is a generational exercise where today a large number of very smart, very clever people have decided not to get a job. 
and work in a flexible way on a project basis or start up their own businesses or whatever it may be. Um, you know, you can make substantial money on YouTube. You know, right. you know do you know what I mean? I mean, the, 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 those options just did not exist previously. So, I mean, there's a lot of other factors. Plus, I think the economics, you know, if you look at the macroeconomics of interest rates, inflation, so on and so forth, um, they all kind of indicate that the market at some point will slow down. Mm, yeah, absolutely. What about the, you know, oil prices and the knock-on effect that has with, you know, the war in Eastern Europe and sanctions against Russia? Because I was reading um, that, you know, some people think that is going to have a major, um, you know, drawbacks for the economy overall. Uh, without question. Without question. I mean, if oil prices have gone from $87 to $139 in three weeks, um, the impact of it is is huge. It's just very simple supply and demand, right? Um, and we are still a, a population across the world that still exists and survives on petroleum products. Yes. Um, and if you then add gas to it, you know, Europe Europe receives 40% of its gas from Russia. Um, you know, the UK is slightly different. It gets procures, I think, less than 10% from Russia. So I think those impacts will happen for sure. I mean, what those impacts will be, I don't know. Um, but pricing, it will definitely add fuel to inflation. Definitely. So then this is the... This is the um challenge then and this is where your experience and the experience of recruitment entrepreneur comes in to play what advice are you giving your partners in respect to um capitalizing on the you know resurgence in the market right now and investing for growth at the same time as protecting the downside so that what you know sooner or later things slow down you're not exposed. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, we're expanding quite aggressively into new markets. Um, and as we, when we were in uh, Edinburgh, me and Doug explained to you that we've created RE-USA um, and we're going to the United States. I mean, that is a huge, huge, huge market. It's 30% of the global recruitment market. Um, mm. So, you know, that's an interesting play for us. So that's a full-blown go-to-new market. Um, at the same time, I think the advice in the in in our case is no different. It's hire good people if you can find good people. Good people, and there's a definition of what I would classify as good people, um, are always going to make you uh, a better business. Um, so I, I think I think we at this point aren't looking at just increasing headcount for the sake of headcount. We are increasing headcount where we either have sticky relationships, as I, as I mentioned earlier, or where we are diversifying into new sectors, new markets. So those we are pretty aggressive about. Um, obviously, the US for us is a huge, huge, huge play. Um, and, you know, we could have triple the size of our business in the UK today in the US in a shorter period of time, simply based on the populations, right? And one last piece to that is bad markets or recessionary markets 
are always good for startups, right? Lots of people suddenly haven't got a job, but are very good recruiters. And they suddenly think, okay, you know what? This is the time that I'm going to do it. So, um, you know, my experience is some of the greatest brands have come out of, you know, bad, hard markets. Totally. Yeah, no, it's a great point. So I'm really interested in your expansion. Let's talk about that in a second. But you you alluded to your definition of good people. So could you expand on that for me? Um, oh, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> it's an, a really important, I mean, yeah. really, it's so important it for is. building a strong business. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think expertise for me is number one, or at least a passion for something, right? You know, if you are an IT recruiter, great. You know, legal recruiter, great. But what's your passion for the subject? How much do you know about it? You know, do you get up in the morning and enjoy reading all that stuff in that sector? You know, so passion and interest, I think for me, is, is, is a real, real expertise is what I would call it. In, in, a, in a specific market is, without question, the most important thing. I think behavior and attitude is probably the second most important thing. Because if you have those two things and positive ones, then you can almost create anything. The rest is the norm. But those two things, I think, for us, um, would make really, really good recruiters, really, really good leaders, um, and people who will who will make an impact in the market. A hundred percent. Could you give me an example of the attitudes or behaviors that you look for, or that you're, you know. Um, CEOs, you encourage your CEOs to look for when they are recruiting internally? Yeah, sure. I mean, for me, slightly out of the norm is good. Slightly unhinged is good. (laughs) Not not crazy, but slightly unhinged in the sense that you really, really know what you want to do. Because, you you know, you meet anybody who's passionate about something and they are, they're slightly different. Um, so I kind of like that. I kind of like the idea of that. Um, and as long as you can channel that with good behavior and attitude, that that's fantastic. Um, I think somebody who is who is straight talking um, doesn't worry about making mistakes, right? Um, and as Oscar Wilde once said, experience is just another word for your mistakes. So, you know, gain the experience, don't worry about it. Good leadership will always take care of that, right? I think those would be two kinds of things that I would look for in terms of attitude and behavior. I mean, your risk matrix needs to be in hand, but perhaps at the edge. What do you mean by that, Abed? How, how you approach um, a, anything, you generally have an inbuilt risk matrix, Right. Um, and whether it's a decision that you make, whether you spend 10 quid on something or whether you hire somebody um, and, or whether you pick up the phone and ring the client or you send them an email, right? You all, everybody has an inbuilt kind of, if you like, barrier, but I would prefer to call it risk matrix. Um, and I would like people to have a controlled risk matrix. So they are prepared to go to the edge of something before and then go experience it, make the, make the mistakes if they like, and then it's no longer at the edge because they've created that experience and that risk matrix becomes broader and bigger. And so you're a little bit more exciting and you're a little bit more out there in the market and you're happier and more comfortable. You know, all of those things. That is really interesting. I've not 
ever heard it described that way before, Abbott, as a risk matrix. Um, I think, is that your original idea? I've not come across it. Um, I'm not sure, actually. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> I certainly well, have, I, I'm sure somebody clever has come up with it before me. For sure. <laughs> for sure. Well, last week at Melville Castle, I actually was chatting with your COO. Yeah. And we were talking about internal recruitment and, um, you know, what hiring and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, I was telling him that my colleague, Leanne, who's my COO, um, delivered a training recently for our clients on recruiting recruiters because before getting into the coaching business, she had a rec-to-rec company for five years and she's been in rec-to-rec for 10 years in total. And she's recruited 700 recruiters for fast-growing recruitment companies. And when she did this exercise where she went back, she had all the records still from all the placements she made. She looked at who was still with the company that she placed them with, who had left the industry and who had stayed in the industry but moved on to a new company. And then who had progressed as well and and been promoted to manager, director, and so on. She went back and then looked at the original resumes and CVs and what were the co- and the interview notes, what were the characteristics of those who have stayed in the industry and progressed? It was really fascinating. But one, you know, like your risk matrix resonates here because one of the things she found is that a high proportion of them, they like a lot of these people, she had no recruiting experience and hadn't even considered recruiting until she pitched it to them. But she looked for people who had done something difficult. They had challenged themselves. They had pushed themselves to do things that were outside their comfort zone. So had they gone traveling, for example, you know, before or after uni, had they, you know, put themselves into situations where there was a steep learning curve or where they had to, you know, cope with um, levels of uncertainty that, you know, most people shy away from. Uh, The other thing she looked at was a high proportion of them. Interestingly, a university degree was not an indicator. Um, But one thing that came through, which was way out of proportion to the normal population, was uh, people who'd been involved in competitive sports, especially in leadership roles like captain of the rugby team or, you know, someone who had been a high-level swimmer who had to get up super early in the morning before school, like at primary school, at high school, they were up and at the pool before starting their school day. That's hard. That takes incredible discipline. And so those things were better indicators than, you know, whether or not they went to uni. Yeah. So oh, I, really I, would, I would totally agree with that. Uh, so... Tell me about the U.S. expansion. Um, James has given me his take on it, and I know that this is a huge – like, you guys are absolutely going for this, and I have no (laughs) doubt you're going to make it successful. But, like, what are the plans for the USA? And, and, uh, yeah, tell me. I'm excited to learn. So, I mean, the USA makes up 30% of the recruitment market globally. It's the largest recruitment market, full stop. It's a very interesting market because you've got the very big players, the Robert Halfs and you know the Michael Pages and the S3s, and then you've got a you know the big search firms, but Corn Ferry, Russell Reynolds, Hydrogen Struggles, etc. And then you've got this huge, absolutely enormous number of search firms or mixture of search and contingency firms that 
fall into either a franchising category or as independents and they are experts in a market and and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them thousands yeah yeah so the my my our market is about identifying people within that group and saying have you ever thought about scaling a business have you ever mm. thought about building a business that's exitable i mean if you'd look at the zrg model um zrg have shown in the us that with a bit of investment and a lot of know-how you can build an extremely extremely successful brand very very quickly so our our intention is to take what we built in the UK, which is an option. It's an option for recruiters that they did not have before we turned up in the market. And that is exactly what we're going to do in the US. We're going to take our options, explain the options to people. And is it for everyone? No, but it's not for everyone here either. But you know, the numbers are so great that if we were half as successful, you know, you're talking about 60 to 100 businesses at some point that would have been invested by us and and we'll exit them. That is amazing. Uh, uh, really exciting to, to hear. Um, why do you think there are so many independent one-man bands, small boutiques that never really scale what is going on there i think they've all tried okay i think a large majority of them will have gone from one man to five man to ten man and maybe 15 20 people and then slip back to eight and then back up to 12. there is an art form in it you know if it was easy we would have all done it Right. right. Why didn't we all become Alexander Mans, you know, or Michael Pages or Robert Walters or any of the big brands? Why didn't we all get there? The reality is there's a, there's, there is a way to do it. And it's not something <clears throat> that's out there that you can just pick up a book and read and say, mm. this is the way to do it. Because the nuances of building a business, scaling a business is, are two things. But then you add to it exitable businesses you then need to know what an exit is and what are the variations of that exit. And there could be multiple things. So if you haven't done it, it's kind of like pitching it in the dark. You may well exit, but you can't plan for it. Because what are you planning for if you don't know how to do it? Mm, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, um, I found, Abid, that there's... Uh, two different categories. Uh, one is those who have no ambition to grow a business. They actually just want the lifestyle and they want to earn a high income without what they regard what they regard as a hassle of having employees and overheads and and so on. Uh, and then there are those who are the ones that you mentioned who would like to grow something, but they do not have the knowledge, the expertise, the blueprint. They just don't know how to do it. And they're trying to figure it out on their own with varying degrees of, of success. Um, but I even wonder if a, a, a large proportion of the one man or one woman shows, what's really holding them back is more fear. And they explain it to themselves as, oh, I don't really want to get too big. Um yeah, I mean, and, I think yeah, I think the answer to your question 
is anybody who's run a business knows they can make money, right? The challenge of creating an income is something which is the lowest common denominator, right? Mm -hmm. The challenge of building a business is a completely different ball game. Um, and it's not for everyone, right? But if you're a one-man band um, and you're happy with switching the lights off at the end of the day and walking away from what you spent 20 years of graft or 10 years of graft with no value in your pocket, but you're happy with that, then I don't see anything wrong with that at all. Full stop, fantastic, well done. However, if you're a person who's sitting there going, look, I've got 20 years of experience, you know, I'd like to do something with this, then that's frustrating. Mm. And, and that's where we can help. I mean, you know, um, we can help that individual, we can guide them, we can mentor them, we can, we can show them how it's done. Um, but if you don't know that exists, it, you have to be a pretty amazing person to go out in the market and say, listen, guys, I don't know what I'm doing. Who's going to help me? <laughs> right? So, so, you, so I, I think our first challenge is going to get the message out to the market. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just such a big and diverse market that hopefully, I think we launch April the 4th. So we'll see what, what that brings. Um, but also, I think then having enough conversations for me to maybe then come back another day and tell you, look, this is the feedback from these groupings. Um, but my, my gut instincts would be that because you aren't able to shop for it, right, you haven't actually had the opportunity to look at the product or the, or, or the service. Mm, I, that makes total sense. Have you ever dreamed of launching, scaling, and one day selling your recruitment business? If so, I highly recommend you speak to Recruitment Entrepreneur. Founded by former Dragon's Den star James Kahn, Recruitment Entrepreneur is the world's leading private equity firm specifically focused on the recruitment industry. They invest in startups and scale-ups and have already backed over 30 founders. There's no reason why you couldn't be their next joint venture partner. James's first company, Alexander Mann, sold in 2013 for $260 million. His second venture, Humana International, he grew with Doug Bugey to over 140 offices in 30 countries before selling to MRI. James and his team are actively looking for ambitious recruiters from across the United States and around the world who want to partner with them to launch and scale successful recruitment businesses. They provide the funding, expertise, mentoring, and back office support to make your dream a reality. To learn more about Recruitment Entrepreneur in the USA or anywhere globally, go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC as in venture capital. Book a discovery call with them and be sure to tell them that you were sent by Mark Whitby in the Resilient Recruiter podcast. Once again, visit recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC. Imagine that I signed up with you guys today. I said, okay, let's do it. I want to launch a business. Here's my niche. I've been recruiting in this area successfully for five years. Yeah. I, I've got that passion and that market knowledge that you you described, um, but uh, I don't really you know, know how, to, how to scale. What would be the process that you would take me through to help me to do that? Wow, that's... So to give you an idea, um, your onboarding would have a minimum of 100 actions. Okay. Everything from awesome. deeding your website to your financial modeling, to your accounts, to how do you report your numbers, although you're your one-man band, you know, what, what's the story? Why is anybody coming and joining you? 
you know, what, what are you offering? It's not just because you're a fantastic person. You know, why are they coming to you? What is the vision of the business? What is it, what is it that we're trying to build together that's going to attract the right people? Because without the three Cs, right, so candidates, clients, and consultants, you can't build a business, right? Mm. So that's kind of the starting point. But, you know, behind the scenes, everything from how you do your payroll to your banking, to your finance, your, your audit, your reporting, your financial reporting, that is, you know, to your marketing, to your talent acquisition, they will be somebody who will effectively be working for your business the day you come across that line. Um, so you then can concentrate on what you're good at, um, and and this team then delivers those things based on, obviously, a fairly robust plan. Um, and then you get the likes of Doug, myself, James, mentoring you as an individual, because you've been the corporal, the sergeant, the the, the major and the general, and suddenly you've got to change that mindset um, and and you've got to kind of work through that. And you can't change things overnight. You know, I think it was Aristotle who said, excellence is not an act, but a habit, right? Yes. So you've got this habit um, and you've got to rejig it. You've got to rejig that habit so that other people are coming into your business and feeling that osmosis of learning that you've built up over 10 years or 20 years or whatever it is that you want you you have um and those are sounds so easy doesn't it it just does well no it's it not. does like <laughs> yeah absolutely what you're talking about is applying a rigor uh that most small businesses don't really have bringing yeah. almost like the rigor and the reporting and the structure of a big business um, this is something that, again, I, I, I'm giving a lot of credit to Romney Ross today. He uh, had the philosophy that if you want to grow to become a big business, then start sure. acting as if you already are. Yeah. You know, you need your monthly management reports. You need, you know, these things in place that maybe you've never thought were that important because it's just you on your own. But if you have ambitions to grow, you need to really structure things properly. Oh, look, I mean... If you're building a business to scale it and sell it, if at whatever point in your in your business career you're going to sell that business for 10 million or 15 million or 20 million or whatever the number is, the person who writes that check is going to check everything within your business. That due diligence will be pretty deep in terms of what your business does. When you're a one-man band or a one-person band, why would you write a report? Because you're writing the report for yourself. However, if you're building a business on, from day one, knowing that somebody else will read it when they're about to write you a check in five years' time or whatever the time frame is, that report becomes really, really important, right? So believing that you have the ability and the business and the support to scale and then exit a business drive certain habits because without them you could scale it but you won't be able to sell it mm. and there's plenty of plenty of examples of very 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 good businesses out there that are just not sellable could you elaborate we touched on this last time but could you just uh explain why a business might be very successful billing a lot of money but not really be attractive to uh, an acquirer 
So I'll give you a simple example. Let's say, let's kind of make this really simple. I'm buying your business for a pound, right? I'm buying it for a pound because I think it's going to be two pounds, not because I want a pound back. So how am I going to do that? I'm going to ask you, how, do I, how is your business going to give me the extra pound? And you're going to come up with all sorts of lovely plans. You're going to say, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, blah, 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 blah. And I say, great. Now tell me, in the last five years when you got to this point, when did you set up a plan that you executed? And you're going to say, well, I did it every month. So, well, show me. And the reality is if you haven't got board packs, you haven't got budgets, you haven't got detailed notes on in January saying, hey, I'm going to do this and deliver them in June, the reality is that's a discountable exercise now, right? Um, mm. So I would, if I was buying your business, I would, I would dip test your board packs. I would just literally say, show me one from you know, January 2019 and show me one in November 2019, right? Tell me what you wrote, what, whether that was done later. Now, if that's all cool, that's just a example. But imagine 20 different examples like that, where if it's not registered, if it's not deliberately put in place, then that's a very large trust check I'm writing. When you say discountable, you mean that's going to reduce the amount you're, Correct. you will offer me? Without question. Without question. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, why is that? Could you just explain the psychology or, or the, you know, the, the, from the buyer's perspective, why is it important to have that track record of setting and achieving goals and, and seeing that consistent progression? It's like anything. It's not just a buyer. I mean, anybody, if I was coming to join your business and you could prove that to me, that every year you grew by X percent and you set it in January and you did it by December, that'd be a wow factor, right? Right. Irrespective of whether I was buying you or not, if I was just joining you, that would be, wow, God, this guy does, you know, it does what it says on the tin, right? Yeah. Now, if I was a buyer and I was going to put more money into it or more effort into it or more whatever, then that's pretty exciting because that means that you're going to do that with my help so I could maybe make it 1.5 more than the original pound. So, they, you know, there, there, there are lots of emotions involved to it, but there's also science involved to it. Mm. Um, and, and that science is unfortunately really boring. Um, <laughs> and, and, well, yeah, it is boring and it's diligent and like all good salespeople, we're, we, we don't like that kind of stuff, right? Um, Interesting. So, um, James shared a really brilliant example of a uh, business who's already been through this whole cycle with you, uh, startup, you know, continuous growth, and then um, was acquired by an American company. I think it was in, is it Life Sciences or? Uh, yeah, Life Sciences and Supply Chain. Yeah. Okay. Um, which was which was beautiful. Like, what are some other um, success stories that you've had in the UK that you're hoping to replicate in new markets like the US? Oh, look. Um, I mean, I I can tell you with with no doubt that within the next eighteen months, between one and three of our businesses will exit. Wow. Okay. okay. Um, Replicating that in the U.S. Um, will take some time, because yes. first of all, we've got to find the right 
partners, the right JVs to back, and then kind of work with them. It's hard. You know, yes. it's, it's hard work. The journey's a tough one, right? But the end game is super cool. It's super, super cool for all parties involved. And, yeah. you know, one of, one of the greatest bits of that whole exit exercise of the example that James gave you was one of the comments that somebody made was that when they read the board packs from when, the, when James, had f the, uh, the founder had first written his board packs, and the the last ones that he'd written, they were like two different people completely, um, just completely. The language, the narrative, the 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 notes, the you know, it was just a completely different person. It was a business person as opposed to a recruiter, um, and it was a very telling comment. And for me, probably the most satisfying, mm. apart from the check. It speaks <laughs> right. right. <laughs> well, yeah. it speaks to the journey and the development of the the growth and, and development um, of that individual, sure. which, you know, is, is exciting. And so as investors then, what's the time frame you are looking at, uh, you know, for this whole cycle from start to exit? What, like what would be the range? So, well, an exit's uh, not, a, uh, not a date. It's a number. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that number is what the JV founder is happy to accept for the business. If it's one pound, I could sell all of my businesses today, and that would be an exit technically, right? So it's, it's not a date. If you're to asking me, what does it normally take? I'd say anywhere between three to six years. Okay. Wow. That's fast. That is well, it depends, right? Because, thought, because if it's a scale up. It could already have maybe 12 people, yes. right? So you could get it there much faster, but you'd yes. still need three years of, you know, full set of, if you like, the package to get you to the exit. Right. Okay. Got it. And so three to six years, let's say, but it's more of a number. Is that number, how do you arrive at that number? That's the founder's number. Okay. That's the founder's number. It's not my number. Um, I mean, obviously we have input in it, but it is what the founder's number is. And by the way, right. that changes too. You know, as, of course. Uh, yeah, right. you know, I'd be happy with this today, but you know, two years later, mm, uh, no, I think I might like a bit more. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, um, one big challenge that I see with trying to scale a business is typically in smaller recruitment businesses, the owner, or the founder is also the primary fee generator. And, you know, in order to fund that growth, they need to continue on in that role for, you know, some time. And the, the challenge is what, how do you allocate time to working on the business and doing all the things that you said are essential in order to really scale as opposed to the percentage of time you're working in the business, doing deals, making placements, you know, paying for everything that you're trying to accomplish, and how do you split that time? So, uh, I, I mean, that, that really, really good question. I, I'd love to explain it in detail, but it'll just bore everybody. So, I'll give it to you. <laughs> okay. I'll give it to you in a very quick snapshot. When you right. start that biz, when you start a business, you know, it's Pareto's rule: eighty twenty, right? 
um, all you're going to do is over a period of time, slowly, slowly switch that 80-20 from you being the rainmaker to you, the business leader. You can't do it overnight. It's not sensible to do it overnight, and you probably won't enjoy it doing it overnight. You might think you do, but you won't. So, so that's where this whole mentoring piece comes in. You can't change habits overnight. You can't change mentality overnight. You just have to agree between the two parties, i.e. the mentor and the mentee, that that's where you're heading. Some get there faster, some never make it, right? Um, and those that aren't going to make it, we then think of a plan B, which is hire somebody who can do all of those other things for you. But, right. but you know, it's, it's such a complex exercise because it is purely dependent on the individual who is leading and running that business. You know, we can only guide that person. We can, you know, we can mentor them. We can suggest things. But at the end of the day, it's their business and they're going to make it happen. Interesting. No, that's, uh, of course, there's not uh, an easy answer to that question. No. <laughs> and uh, yeah. it's interesting because I've gone for a plan B in my business, Sabid. I've realized that I am not the person to grow. Yeah. You know, uh, I am the visionary. I don't know if you've read Traction by Gino Wickman. Um, no. I'm the visionary, but I need an integrator, somebody who is going to actually, you know, I, so that's where Leanne comes in. She's been managing people all through high school. She managed teams in hospitality. People who are older than her. She's continued managing people and building teams like throughout university and then in her first recruitment job, like as a, she started as a rookie recruiter and within three months she was, you know, a top biller. And then within six months she was hiring and training, you know, other recruiters. So that's her strength. That's not my strength. And uh, I, it took me a while to recognize that because it's a bit of an ego you have to accept. Look, I've not done, it's been all, this long and I've still not grown anything. So maybe well, I'm not the person to do that. Yeah. I mean, look, what, what happens is you just mentor differently. So the person that you hire then gets the mentorship for that kind of function. And, and this, the founder CEO is no less of an individual. He's just playing to their strengths. Um, and, and you mentor them because the end game is clear. I think a lot of decision-making is done for the moment rather than for the future. As in, you ha we have fixed ideas about what the future should look like, but it's not an end game. It's not a, you know, with us, it's very precise. It's an exit, right? We're not building brands as legacy brands, right? So everybody knows that that's the aim of the business and people who come in through the door, if you like, um, are aligned to that. So I think th there needs to be, you know, there's that, what's that saying? I think I used it in your last podcast. You know, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Right, yeah. Right? So <laughs> totally. you, 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 need, you need to kind of have very precise goals about things. Um, and once those goals are in place, then ego is left on the sidelines because you're achieving those goals. Whether you achieve them yourself or your team does, or your individuals within your team do, should not matter, right? Because the goals are jointly developed to get them there, and everybody within that team has a function. Um, and as long as all the goals are clear, everybody pulls towards the same, same, same kind of exercise. And I, I think people don't spend enough time thinking about that when they're building businesses. They kind of have a problem, and they try and fix it. 
by saying, right, I need to grow something. I can't do it. I'm going to hire someone. Okay, great. But that's a functional exercise. It's not a. Mm-hmm. It's not something that's kind of, what's the word? Motivationally, kind of focused. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. That's working backwards from here's where I want to get to. Yeah. You know what are we going to do to get there? What um, is there anything I've not asked you today, Abbott, that you were that you would like to share? Um, no, I, I'm. I don't know a lot, so um, I'd probably. I'll leave it to you. I mean, we could talk about almost every one of the subjects that you brought up. I mean, Absolutely. you know, for hours. Um, <laughs> but um, no, I mean, I think I think that's that's pretty good. Awesome. Well, look, um, if people are ex- interested in this opportunity, they want to find out more. What's the best way for them to reach out? Drop me an email. Um, I mean, as simple as that. If you just want to chat about it, you want to ask loads of questions. Or you just kind of want to say, look, I want to ask you questions. I'm running a business, but I don't want anything to do with you. I'm also happy to kind of answer the questions just from an advice perspective. I'm more than happy to do that. Obviously, they can approach me on LinkedIn, um, but, you know, uh, drop me an email. Um, my email is really simple. It's abid, that's A-B-I-D, at recruitmentvc.com. Fantastic, Abid. Listen, it's been a pleasure catching up as usual. Thank you so much for your time and all the fantastic insight. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.